if you don't tell the world who you are, the world is going to tell everybody who you are. So you got two brands today. Everybody listening to this has two brands. One is the company that they're building. The other one is themselves. Mike Ditka, Mark Cuban, Ric Flair, Vanilla Ice, Jordan Belfort, Kevin Hart, and Magic Johnson. What do they all have in common? They've all been interviewed by today's guest on the Assyrian Podcast, episode number 37. Hi friends, it's Steve, and I'm so thrilled and excited to be here with you today. There are so many people who talk about their projects, things they want to do in life, decisions they have to make, and risks they need to take. And then... There are those who launch several different businesses, write multiple books, and create a media channel that has close to 1 million subscribers. Yes, I said 1 million. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Patrick Bet David. Patrick is not only an entrepreneur himself, but he loves mentoring and encouraging entrepreneurs throughout all the ups and downs that come with being an entrepreneur. He started PHP Agency, which is an insurance company with over 8,000 agents. And he also created the YouTube channel, which many of you have seen, called Valuetainment. On top of all that, he's a proud Assyrian, and I'm so thankful he took the time to be interviewed for the Assyrian podcast. What continues to astound me about Assyrians is the depth and breadth of the people that are out there. Who would have thought that one of the most successful YouTube channels and insurance gurus is an Assyrian? I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Please share this episode and tell your friends about us. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Tony Calgaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Calgaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or at 847-986-9516. Also, a special thanks to sponsor John O'Shauna from HomeSmart International for sponsoring this episode. Whether you are thinking about buying or selling real estate in Arizona or California, put John's proven track record to work. John's focus is residential, multi-units, and commercial properties. Check out John on Facebook.com slash John O'Shauna Realtor or Instagram at John.O'Shauna. Contact him today at 209-968-9519. Again, special thanks to John for making this episode happen. And now, here is the one and only Patrick Bet David. That's right. <laughs> I just did a call with a guy who uh, uh, thought I was Jewish, you know, and, and he's a big insurance player. Ben David. But that's Ben David, but they think I'm Jewish, so it's, 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 a, it's a confusion for most people. But Assyrians generally know. If it's bet something, they kind of have an idea it's Assyrian. I just sensed it. I don't know what it was, but I must have seen some of your videos, and I was like, man, is this guy Assyrian, you know? And then I did a little, re- I was like, he is Assyrian. He's- 
And your look, you know, you look like an Assyrian. I look so. like an Assyrian. There you go. All right. All right, Patrick, thanks so much for being on the Assyrian podcast. Actually, I did want to say Shlam Aluch. Shlam Even Amun, all that Assyrian podcast. And I wanted to actually open with, I've watched a lot of your content, and uh, you've got guys like Ric Flair and Mark Cuban and Kevin Hart and Jordan Peterson, and the list goes on and on. What's it like to be on the other side when folks are about to ask you questions? I, I'm probably comfortable um, being on this end more, you asking me questions, because my philosophies are pretty clear. And if I'm not clear, I'll just tell you I'm not clear. The other side is different because I actually do a lot of research. So anytime I do an interview, if you watch one of the interviews, you'll see the questions I'm asking. How does he know this date? Or how do I, and a lot of people will come and I say, Pat, I do extensive amount of research before I do an interview with somebody. So it makes it more challenging because I'm running a business here with employees. You're seeing the operation. I'm running two businesses here, Valuetainment PHP. I have to deal with my investors, with my uh, uh, agents, uh, 8,000 agents in 49 states. I have to deal with carriers. So anytime I'm doing an interview, I have to sit like last night. I was up, last, I slept two hours last night. And the reason why I slept two hours last night was because today we're leaving. We're renting a Sprinter. We're getting 15 of our uh, production team members. We're driving seven hours away to do our million subscriber video. I don't know if they told you about it or not. And it's going to be a crazy <laughs> experience. So I have to prepare for I'm all about preparing for interviews. So I prefer this side than the side you're on right now. Good to know. Yes. Because it is a lot of work to get it ready. It is, and, of course. And, uh, you, and I've got, I think I've got some questions that are Patrick Bet David worthy. So Excellent. Patrick, if I wanted to know how to start my own business, if I wanted to get more confident, if I wanted to know how to go through a breakup or how to overcome conflict, there's so much good content that you've created that's out there. So for now, actually, before we jump into some of that sort of stuff, I want to hear more about your Assyrian heritage and your Assyrian background. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, for me, I was born and raised in Iran, and uh, I went to an Assyrian church in Iran, a very well-known Assyrian church in Iran. I don't remember the name. I just do remember that... Uh, when we would go there, everybody in L.A. knew that was the main Assyrian church that everybody would go to. And I went first grade to a school called Gulbengian, which was an Armenian school. And then from uh, third and fourth grade, I went to an Assyrian school, which was about 40 minutes away from where we lived. So I'd get picked up in a bus and I'd go to the Assyrian school. It was a good-sized Assyrian school. Do you remember the name of the Assyrian school? I don't school? remember the name of the Assyrian school. I found out right now I'm on the podcast with you. <laughs> but I don't remember the name of it, but I do remember going to the Assyrian school and then fifth grade, I went back to Gulbengian. So my mother's side, they're Armenian, Bogosian. Mm -hmm. And my dad's side, Bedavid, Assyrian. And my dad and I are best of buddies. I'm a proud, proud Assyrian, as well as proud Armenian, but proud Assyrian. Uh, I wasn't that involved in the Assyrian community. So I was a kid that went to Glendale High School. Glendale was more Armenian. It didn't have a big Assyrian community. And the only people who were Assyrian were friends of mine, Emil Brimway. We had certain Assyrian people that were friends of mine. But there was not a big presence in Glendale High School. So I, you know, leaned more towards Armenian. And then I went to the Army, and in the Army, nobody was Armenian or Assyrian. So that kind of completely took me away from the Middle Eastern community until I came back. So that's my connection that I have with the Armenian and the Assyrian community. Yeah, and how did your parents choose Glendale? So, you know, my parents got a divorce when I was at uh, Germany at a refugee camp. And so when they got a divorce and we were coming to the States, um, we had relatives in Granada Hills. I lived in Granada Hills. And then my mother simply had more friends in Glendale. So we just moved to Glendale. Sure. And she felt at home because she had her relatives there, Armenians. 
and uh, you didn't have to immediately learn English for herself. And so it's probably uh, the most comfortable transition for her. That's how we ended up in Glendale. And your pops, did he come out to Glendale as well? No, he stayed in Granada Hills. And he lives in a community in Granada Hills. My dad, it took me God knows how many years for him to let me buy him a new car. Okay, he wouldn't let me buy him a new car. Mm -hmm. The day he let me buy him a new car is the day his Mercedes diesel's engine completely blew up after 500,000 miles. He just wouldn't do it. And then finally I bought him a brand new Mercedes. So he lives in a community in Granada Hills, which is pretty much, I'd say, 30% Assyrian. So he's all about yeah. being around Assyrians. So now that he's got his Mercedes, is he like one of those Assyrian dads that's like, you know what? I'm not going to turn on the AC. I don't want to waste the AC. He is one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. He really is. He, you know, he, don't, he, he never liked the fact that I got a lot of tickets. My license got suspended multiple times. I mean, I was, <laughs> when I was trying to be a cop at 21 years old, I already had 16 speeding tickets, so I couldn't be a cop. But he's the guy like... One time, cop pulled him over, okay? So here's a cop pulling my dad over. My dad is chewing the cop out. How dare you pull me over? Go run my report. I haven't had a ticket since 1984. Do you realize who I am? I am the most perfect driver, safe driver in the world. I'm not like my son. I drive safe. And the cop comes back and says, sir, you're right. I'm so sorry I pulled you over. Please have a good day. So that, that's the kind of a dad I have. Yeah, that's awesome. With that being said, I noticed you moved here June 15, 1989 from Iran. Usually a lot of Assyrians, Middle Eastern people, they left a lot earlier, early 80s. What, what led it, your journey to come in in 89? So we escaped July 15, 89 from uh, Iran to Germany. And I lived in Germany at a refugee camp for 18 months. And then we moved here November 28, 1990 to the States. So we went to Iran, Germany. We didn't have a green card. We waited for our green cards. Then we came to the States. So our transition was uh, an 18-month stop. You know, a lot of time when people leave Iran, uh, they go either Iran, Austria, Iran, Germany, Iran, France, Iran, Spain, and then they come here. Ours was Germany. And it ended up being a great experience because that was the first place where I actually had an experience of a selling or business or entrepreneurship. So phenomenal experience going through Germany. Till today, I've been all over the world. And when I think about places I've lived, probably some of the most incredibly positive, memorable times of my life is at the refugee camp in Germany. Mm. Heaven. I had such a good time. What was it that was made it so impactful? You know, everybody was broke. Everybody was escaping uh, uh, some sort of a communism or dictatorship or socialism, and everybody just wanted freedom. You know, we were just happy to be free, and we didn't care about what kind of a car you drove. Nobody had anything. You would. It's almost like, think about it this way. You know, I've dated a lot before I got married, but there is nothing like puppy love. You will never experience it again. It only happens one time. Puppy love is one time. And when it happens, you know, some people try to go back to puppy love to try to make puppy love work. It, it's not like that. Puppy love is a one-time thing. You know, neither one knows what's going on. You're in love. She's in love. Neither one knows even what love means. It's innocent. It's beautiful, right? Being at the refugee camp was that level of innocence for all of us where we were kind of like, Look, man, I just want to be free. You want to be free. Let's just become friends. Let's go play. What do you eat? Where are you from? What do you want? Great experience. Now, at the same time, my first puppy love was in Germany. It was a girl named Katarina. <laughs> her brother uh, was a friend of mine, and her brother loved video games. And I loved her sister. His sister. His sister was gorgeous. They were Czechoslovakian, Katarina Staff. So one day I said, what do you want? He says, I want video games. I said, dude, I don't have that kind of money. But I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find the money. 
So I went to a local swimming pool. In the local swimming pool, they drank a lot of beer in Germany. And I said, look, you know, there's beer bottles everywhere. I went to the owner. I was 10, 11 years old. I said, you got a lot of beer bottles here. What will you pay me if I clean it up? He said, I'll give you five fennec per beer bottle. And Super Mario Brothers 2 was coming out at yeah, that time. Yeah. So I said, I need 5,000 beer bottles. It took me 30 days to gather 5,000 beer bottles. I got my 250 marks. I went to Kaufauf, which was Germany's, uh, you know, a target. And I bought the Super, Super Mario Brothers, and I brought it back. He played video games. I played with his sister. Here's a funny story. Years later, we lose contact, fully lose contact of each other. 19 years later, six months after I'm getting married, they send me a message. And she says, I've been waiting. I haven't gotten married because we oh promised each other gosh. we'd get married. Just one of these crazy stories. Now, obviously, <laughs> she's happily married now herself in Italy, in Spain. But, uh, yeah, so that was puppy love. So, for me, Germany has got a very special place in my heart till the day I die. I love that place. Yeah. Great experience. And to be able to, at that age, on your own, buy Super Mario Brothers. This was gigantic. Yes, it you was. You could own Super Mario Brothers. You can invite the whole neighborhood the whole, That's over right. There. That's what it was. So that's pretty amazing that ties into your own history and background of what you're doing now. You were even then, hey, I've got this target. This is what it's going to take. And yeah. it's a simple process of getting it. No doubt about it. Collecting bottle caps. And think about it. Somebody benefited from it. The pool got cleaner. Kaufauf benefited. Katarina's brother benefited. And I benefited. And Katarina so, reaches out 20 years 20 later. 20 years later on Facebook. Hey, How wild. Super Mario needs to know about this. That's right. So you ended up joining the military after yeah. you all moved here. Tell us the decision making there. So, you know, uh, uh, one day it was a very simple decision. A guy named Jesus Guerrera used to talk to me when I was 14 years old, when I was in high school. And I wasn't a good kid. So, I, you know, I never had grades. I was a 1.8 GPA kid in high school. So... Uh, when, when everybody graduated high school, most of my friends went to CSUN or UCLA, USC, and I went to Glendale Community College. And Glendale was, you, you did not want to go to Glendale Community College. So I went to Glendale Community College, and uh, me and my friend Armand Bakijanian, who now runs Rafi's Place, which I don't know if you've been to Rafi's Place Absolutely. in L.A. If you've been to Rafi's Place, uh, actually, Food Insider did a video of his yesterday and went viral. It's got one and a half million views. It's just a... You know, you know when you're a special place, when on Yelp you have 3,500 reviews at four and a half star. That's the restaurant he runs. He was my best man at my wedding as well. And we went to first grade to get in Iran, not knowing each other. Wow. So pretty wild. So him and I would hang out with each other. We Neither one of us were good kids. And uh, at that time, I was uh, uh, partying hardcore. And uh, I asked my sister to move back with her. So I moved back to move in with her for about 30 days. I lived with her. And next thing you know, she was getting evicted because one night... At all these people over in her bathtub in 17550 Burbank Boulevard in Encino. And we're partying, and her, you know, finally the landlord said, you just can't have this guy here, whoever this guy is. It's, it's my brother. You can't have him. You just got to leave. So I went to sleep that night at 4 o'clock. We drank so much vodka the night before. And uh, woke up in the morning. I went outside uh, to go to my Toyota Corolla 1983. It was stolen. So it was stolen. So I said, wait a minute. What do you mean it's stolen? I made a police report. And then uh, I called everyone, I'm like, I just can't, I need a car. So that moment, I'm in the balcony. No one's there. I'm by myself. I said, screw it. I'm joining the Army. I called my dad. I said, Dad, come get me to the recruiting station. I need to go to the Army. He took me to the recruiting station. I signed up. I said, I'll only sign up if you can send me there tomorrow. He says, normally it takes three months. I said, I'm not, I'm not signing up. Made a few calls. Two weeks that I was in South Carolina in the U.S. Army. My mom didn't know I was in the Army because she was in Iran. I called her. 
two weeks after being in the Army, telling her I signed up for the Army. So last-minute decision, off the cuff, I'm going to the U.S. Army. That's how it happened. So PBD is no hesitation, realizes as a young man his car is gone. And when the car is gone, it's time for a major life switch. Yeah, I was I, I was not happy with the direction my life was going. I joined the Army. I kind of wanted, honestly, in a, in, a, in a simple way, I wanted to be away from everybody. I wanted a break from family. I wanted a break from friends. I wanted a break from reality. I wanted a break from anybody I grew up with. I just wanted to get away for me to figure myself out. And those two and a half years in the military probably helped me figure myself out. You know, there's a guy in here right now. I brought him in because he's going to go with me uh, when we're going to the special place tonight to make the video. Him and I were in the Army to get a best friends for two and a half years, inseparable for two and a half years. He stayed 20 years. I got out of the military. And so we hooked up, we linked up, and we have a similar story. He told me when I met him, he says, Pat, I am going straight to the top in military. Whatever it is that I have to get certified, I'm doing it all. And the guy ended up going from being a regular private to a sergeant to ranger to special forces to Delta Force. There's only 800 members part of the Delta Force. And, uh, you know, that's bigger than Navy SEAL. Navy SEAL is a public. Delta Force, nobody knows what Delta Force is. Very underground. This guy's my best friend. And so he and I would sit there and we would dream. And it was the best opportunity for both of us to get away. He was from Chino, California. We didn't know each other. And it was a way to reflect and say, what are we doing next with our lives? I got, I went a whole different direction. He went into the military, became a super soldier. And now we're linking back up 20-some years later. That's Pretty amazing. wild. Yeah, yeah, that is very wild. And so you get out of the military, you come back to the States, and you're going to be a bodybuilder. Is that is that the right trajectory? Okay. It is. Yeah, I mean, it is. I I, uh, I had a great physique. You know, I was a, uh, 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 I had the uh, chest of an Arnold, had great lats. My arms would develop. My legs weren't strong. My shoulders weren't strong, but I had a good physique. I had a good physique for a tall guy. And so my dream was I'm going to go be Mr. Olympia. If you came to my army barracks, I had posters of Arnold everywhere. I had posters of my favorite female uh, models all over my room. My sergeants used to stay in my room every morning. They just wanted to look at these pictures. And I had posters of John Travolta everywhere. Saturday Night Fever, staying alive. And so you can visualize this Assyrian Middle Eastern guy would dress in polyester pants, bell bottoms, with unbuttoned shirts, you know, polyester shirts that we would buy from uh, uh, Goodwill for five bucks, used shirts. But I promised myself I'm going to go out there and be a Mr. Olympia. So when I got out of the military and I started hanging out with these guys that were Mr. Olympia guys, I realized how much growth hormone, steroids, insulin, how much stuff you wanted to put, you had to put in your body. I just, for a guy my height, even though if I was to say, you know what, I'm willing to put my body through this, you know, very rarely does somebody 6'4 win Mr. Olympia because best height for bodybuilding is 5'8", 5'11". Mm-hmm. That's a good good size, especially nowadays. My friend Phil Heath, who is seven-time Mr. Olympia, he's about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, and he'll say the same thing. That's about the good size weight. So I made the logical decision saying this is just not going to work out for me, and I left the industry. You left the industry, and then you started PHP. Of course, in between all that, you were at Morgan Stanley, yep. and a mentor says to you, if you want to make it, you can't help another company that's established. you got to either start your own thing or start small yep. and grow that, and yep. that's what you did. I did, yeah. I did, and that, that was great counsel. I met a girl named Jean Vierre who uh, met her at Venice Beach, and she worked at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. And, uh, you know, I asked her, how do I get a job there? She said, you need a degree. She was at a, she was a UCLA graduate, and I said, I'm not going to college. 
She said, they won't hire you. The minimum requirement is a degree. And I said, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And so I got my resume, which had Bob's Big Boy, Burger King, Haagen-Dazs, Bally's, and a military, and no degree, not even an associate's degree. But I took my cover letter, and I took my best joke that I had at the time, and I put it on the what, cover. What was the best joke? The joke was, father has three sons, okay? He tells his sons, when I, when I die, I want each of you to drop $1,000 in the coffin in front of all the family for them to know how much you love me. No problem. Finally, the father dies at the funeral. First son drops $1,000 bills. Everybody starts crying, oh, my gosh, the amount of love they have for this guy. The second son drops, you know, $20, $50 bills. Again, crying. The third son comes up. He writes a check for $3,000, takes the $2,000 cash, and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> so I write this joke, and on the bottom of the joke, I told, I told whoever that was looking at my resume, I said, if you're laughing, this is exactly how my clients are going to feel when they do business with me. They're going to love me. I faxed that resume and the cover letter to Morgan, Merrill, Schwab, Goldman, T.D. Waterhouse, Smith, Barney, everybody, 100 places I faxed. 30 callbacks, 15 setups for interview, three job offerings. I took Morgan Stanley, and I took the Morgan job, and then from there I realized financial industry is for me, a place for me to be, and I stuck around. I never changed, stay in the business. So then I started PHP Agency October of 2009 with 66 agents out of Northridge, California, and we grew that from there. We just celebrated our nine years. We're at 8,200 insurance agents in 49 states, and we have 84 offices now, so it's been a wild ride. In that infancy stage, was there many Assyrians involved in your life at that time? Not at all. No, I, um, no, I, we, we were not a big Assyrian uh, uh, agency type of a place at all. We were, like, even, you know, we're 54% Hispanic, mm-hmm. 51% women. The average age is 34 years old, and we're a mixture of all the nationalities. Yeah. But it's never been a big Middle Eastern or Assyrian community. It's been a mixture of everything. Yeah. And so you're doing the PHP, and obviously now it's, it is where it is, and it's, it's continuing to move forward. When did valuetainment settle in? It's a good question. You know, it was accidental. I wasn't really uh, had any plans of social media. I'm a private guy. I don't, uh, uh, I don't really want to tell you everything about myself. Uh, I, I don't think it's your business for me to do any of that stuff to tell you my business. I think everybody has their own life that they live. And then one day, something interesting happened to me, and I started watching social media. I realized with the direction we're going in today, if you don't tell the world who you are, the world is going to tell everybody who you are. So you got two brands today. Everybody listening to this has two brands. One is the company that they're building. The other one is themselves. And so I looked at it, and I said, wait a minute. Here's Ron Paul. He runs for president 2004 on MySpace. He raises $6 million in 24 hours, and he's 70 years old. That's absolutely insanity. Here's Barack Obama, who goes against a guy whose name is you know, McCain, and he's got a resume the size of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And Obama raises a couple billion dollars off of social media and becomes a two-term president. Here is Trump, who becomes a president. He's never been in office for anything, not Senate, not mayor, not state, not, not congressman, nothing, not a governor, and he runs for office, becomes a president as an entrepreneur because he understood the Twitter game. And so when you look at that today, you have to make a decision for yourself at one point. You're either going to get on there and start sharing the world and letting them what you're thinking about, or you're not going to be uh, relevant too much in the, in the world of competition. I was planning on competing, so if you want to compete, you've got to share the world what you think about. I believe in this. I believe in that. And so there's opposition. I don't like what Patrick says, capitalism. I don't agree when Patrick talks about money. I don't like it when that's totally fine. But this is what I'm believing. You either like it or you don't. And so 
that led to us creating content for YouTube. And then one day, uh, I sat down with the people that knew me very well, and I said, hey, what's the one word you think I talk about a lot? And everybody said, entrepreneur and capitalism. I said, we're going to talk about entrepreneurship. So we started a channel called Valuetainment, and, you know, first year I think we had like 500 subscribers. And then second, we had 2,000, then 20,000, then 100,000, and now we're about to cross a million subs. So it's been a, it's been a wild ride, to say the least. Yeah, and it's definitely grown and continues to grow. The thing I think that, from what I've seen, makes it so unique, it, it, it really speaks to who you are, is a lot of entrepreneurs, you see the flashy stuff, you see the nice cars, you see the success and the happiness, et cetera, et cetera. But with you, I also see a lot of transparency. I know you said you're a private guy, but there is times, like you just admitted, your parents got a divorce when you were in a refugee camp. Um, and also the other part of your story that I find to be really unique is there's a lot of transparency about pain. So I'd love to talk more about those areas that, that really formed you at a younger age yeah. and how you overcame a lot of those Yeah, things. so you know, that's crazy. So, so here I am. I go from a private guy to all of a sudden opening up pretty much everything about myself, you mm -hmm. know, the Pandora's box. So why was it? I, I, one of my biggest reasons why I was an atheist for 25 years, okay? I was an atheist for 25 years because uh, I saw too many pastors that would get up and they would say what they would, they, you know, what they would do and what they would stand for and they would fall. And uh, eventually I met a guy uh, in uh, uh, Sierra Madre, off of Sierra Madre exit in Pasadena. I used to go to this guy. We do Bible study at 25 years old. I'd be with him from 6 o'clock at night on Friday nights to 2 o'clock in the morning. Every week we did this for a year and a half. And I went there and I was still not a Christian. I debated everything. How, how is this possible? Tell me about this. Tell me about that. You know, if this is really reality, why is this happening? You know, well, you know, look at the prophecies that he made. How many of them became a reality? Yeah, what about Virgin Mary? How is it even possible? How is it not possible? It's not the So anyways, I went through this whole phase of myself trying to figure myself out. And then it led to a point where I just said, you know what? There are way too many people out there who tell the story, but they sugarcoat it, and they don't open up about their own flaws and mistakes they made. It's almost as if we're afraid to present a product that's not perfect because God forbid somebody sees us and they say, look at this guy. He used to do this, used to do that. And I said, screw all those guys. You know, sometimes being Middle Eastern, it's very annoying because it's a, a, a lot of Armenians or Assyrians or whoever that's listening to this, if you're from Iran or you're Assyrian, there's a lot of fake Assyrians out there, a lot of fake Armenians and, and Persian. And why is that? Because our parents put so much pressure about they can't find out what we're doing. It's so much about what are people going to think about us. If you do that, they're going to say, my son is doing this. I said, listen, screw all your relatives. One day I sat down my, <laughs> I sat down my mom and my dad and I told them, I said, listen, here, here's what you guys got to realize. How I'm wired. I don't care about your brothers. I don't care about your sisters. I care about three people in my life. My mom, my dad, and my sister. I'm not married. You're not married, my sister. You guys are the only ones that matter. And the only other people that will matter to me within that circle at this level is if my wife, my sister gets married, her husband, her kids. Absolutely. My wife, my kids. Everybody else, I'm not playing the political game. Mm -hmm. I'm just not touching it. And so once that happened from there, I said, you know, this is who I am. And I started opening up. You know, I used to party a lot. I used to drink a lot. I used to, you know, go to nightclubs a lot. I used to, my parents went through a divorce. My mother was a communist. My dad was an imperialist. And I just started saying it. So almost what happened by Tim and by Tim became a series of me sharing with you what problem I was going through at that time. 
entrepreneurs for the longest time were afraid of talking about anxiety attacks and panic attacks. Oh my gosh, in 2013, 2014, I went through panic attacks probably 18 months straight. One night I came home from a two-week tour. I was on sleeping probably three hours a night, and that night my I, I thought I was going to die. And the ambulance came, they took me to the hospital, and they said, you're having a panic attack. Your body's exhausted, and this has happened a few times, and all this stress. So these things I talk about simply because you know, marriages. You look at everybody looks so happy with their marriage. My wife and I got into a big fight yesterday, a legit fight last night that lasted till two o'clock in the morning. I have no desire to live a fake life. If there's any types of people that I don't get along with as fake people, people who are real, I have a very easy time with them. But uh, that's probably one of the things that made people who follow Valuetainment um, say, why is this guy talking about all the mistakes he's made? Why is he talking about all this other stuff rather than all the things he did right? I think we're living at a time where if you don't, if you're not too careful, the, the fakeness of the world is going to catch you and it's going to make you miserable because you're always going to wonder about how can I one day live that perfect life and it doesn't exist. Everybody's acting. You can't mm-hmm. buy the act. You have to realize the reality is, isn't what it looks like on Instagram or Facebook. It's pretty challenging. We all have our own insecurities, fear, self-esteem issues, and we're trying to figure it out. And how much of it goes back to being in Iran, going to Germany, and realizing, like, I got nothing here, and I have to figure it out? Uh, I, I, I am the luckiest man alive to live in America where I can give you my opinions into this mic that's looking at me right now, and I can create a YouTube channel and talk about my thoughts, my opinions that have to do with politics, business, finance, money, and at the same time, you know, I can get up and work and build as big of a business that I want to build. I mean, I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. I love it. And also going back to your wife. So do I have this correct? You you guys were like friends for five years mm-hmm. and then you went on a first date. Yes. So we knew each other. So uh, um, I had my uh, girlfriend who was about, I was about to get married and she had her boyfriend who had been with for eight years. Uh, both my girlfriend was a model and her boyfriend looked like an absolute model on steroids. The guy was an extremely good-looking guy. We, all, we always would say, those guys need to go on a date together, man. They look like they're perfect with each other. But we'd go out, and nothing ever happened. I never thought she was open. She never thought I was open. And then one day, she was single, and uh, I had just gone out of a relationship. She had just gone out of a relationship, and um, we were in Palm Springs. We were having dinner one night. I asked her what she's looking for in a man. And she described the man, and then that night we went downstairs, we spoke, and then two days later, driving back from Palm Springs, I had her sit in my car, and I drove her home and uh, with her friends following me, and we drove two and a half hours, and I spoke to her uh, about kind of finding out what she was thinking about, and then we went on our first date. First date was uh, P.F. Chang's in, uh, 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 in Sherman Oaks, and it was December 29th, 07. The following day, I said, I need a day with you. Sunday morning, I took her to church, Shepherd of the Hills. Then we went to uh, the stairs in Santa Monica. It's 177 steps, pretty epic place. Then we went to Earth Cafe, very nice restaurant, good food. Then I took her to Borders Bookstore. Back then, it used to be Borders. And I bought her a book on our second date called 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged. And she looked at me, and she thought I was crazy. I said, listen, I, I am so clear on what I'm looking for in woman for the first time in my life. If this ain't going to work, we're going to know about it. A week after she read the book, at her place, it took us six hours to address every single question. I said, I'm probably going to marry this girl. That's how I got started. Man, decisions, no hesitation, boom. You find what you want, <laughs> it's over. 
So, and then I know that, of course, she's not Middle Eastern, and I had watched the video. She had said that she got some heat from your side of the family of, like, she's not Middle Eastern. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, she's white, and all my friends would say, Pat's never going to marry a white girl. You know, I, I was... I never dated Middle Easterns. I never wanted to date Middle Easterns because I don't like the whole facade and the fakeness and all that. I am not a fan of that, right? So eventually I dated a girl who was half Russian, half Armenian, and, you know, that was the only relationship where I said, my gosh, we are similar. We almost got married, but we were too young to uh, make a decision like that. So with her, you know, when we got married, nobody was dancing. Everybody was sitting on one side, you know, families on the other side, no one's doing anything. And... Uh, 450 people there, all the white people on one side, all the hairy people on the other <laughs> side. And finally, one of my uh, groomsmen was so drunk that night, he got up, grabbed the mic. He says, look, everybody here is wondering whether this marriage is going to work out or not. And I have the same concern. But, you know, after a lot of thought, I realized these guys have two things in common. And he says, she's from Texas. He's from Iran. Both of these guys like oil and weapons of mass destruction. Oh. This is going to work out. And so everybody starts cracking up. They go to the bar. We started dancing. We had a great time. But, yeah, I mean, you know, when I first sat down with her, I told her, I said, you know, here's, here's some things that matter to me. Um, I don't care if you're Middle Eastern, but I want you to know how to cook Middle Eastern food. And I know nowadays you have to be very careful. You know, a woman doesn't belong in the, you know, kitchen and, you know, they're independent. First of all, my wife works every single day at the office. She's at the office right now. She's a VP of operations because she chose to do that. I gave her the option. She said, I don't want to be home. She's been in the financial industry. She sold more insurance policy than I've ever sold. And so she made $150,000 in L.A. her second year in business, third year in business, at 25 years old, not knowing a single soul. So she has her own identity on what she does. But I said, I need you to know how to cook Middle Eastern food. So she knows how to make hormesepsi. <laughs> She knows how to make ikra. She knows how to make, like, listen, she cooks. I don't want anybody else's cooking but her. And so uh, we, have a, we have a very neat relationship together. Relationship yeah. together and today. you've got three, three kids. Three kids, yes. We got a six, a five, and a two. And uh, congratulations. And do you have any more on the way? You know, if it was up to me, we'd have 20, but she's done. Got it. Okay. Yeah, she's done. And what's it like for you to try to pass on your Assyrian and Armenian heritage to your children? It's Are you not, able to do it here in no, Texas? No, not here. And, you know, we, um, uh, uh, our nanny speaks Spanish. And our nanny specifically was instructed to speak to them in Spanish all the time, not English. I don't want her to speak to them in English. Our kids speak Spanish. Uh, anybody speaks to them in Spanish, they all understand, you know, the six to five and the two-year-old. Um, but no, not, not in Dallas. The unfortunate thing about being here is we don't know anybody that's a Syrian here. All our family is still in L.A. So we've been here for two and a half years. That's been a disconnect. But every month I fly my dad. As a matter of fact, he's landing tonight. And he speaks to the kids in Assyrian, and my sister, when she's there, she'll speak to them in Assyrian or Armenian. But uh, that's where we're at today. We've got a couple hundred out here, and I'm going to connect you after the I podcast. would love to get connected. Just to some of their parties. I think you'll actually just have a good time. I'd, lo I'd love and, to. I'd love um, to. So back to the valuetainment side of things. The thing I've noticed is often you'll have these comparisons and there'll be something like this. There'll be, you know, $100,000 in the 80s. Making six figures in the 80s is significantly different than making six figures today. So when you go around and you say, hey, you make six figures today, it doesn't really mean as mm -hmm. much. You have so many examples of these just simple comparisons that make the point really direct. Where does that come from? 
everything to me in my mind is through a, a mathematician. So the entire time I'm talking to, I'm calculating how many of those boxes are behind you. I don't know if you see it, how they're lined up. I'm calculating all of them, I'm just counting the entire time. Everything for me in life is math. Literally everything is math. And sometimes, you know, we are taught to hate math. You know, it's so easy. You know, a mother will tell their kids, oh, I don't like math. I've never was a math person. So the kid will mimic mom and say, I'm not a math person. A father will say to his daughter, I've never been good at math. And so daughter says, me too, dad. I'm also never, I've never liked math. So people get into a habit of saying they don't like math, which in reality, everything in life is math. Cooking is math. The right cook knows what amount of ingredient or salt or length of temperature. That is all a mathematical formula that you're dealing with. Sports, if you're a sports person, it's all math. Look at Billy Bean with baseball, what he did with the movie uh, Moneyball, right? He completely changed the face of baseball. And look who's in the World Series right now. The Red Sox. Billy Bean went to the Red Sox. So this is all, and you can't it's name. It's finally coming together. It's fine. So it's a math thing, right? So you look at religion. For me, faith is mathematical. When you go back and you look at all these prophecies that were made way before it became a reality, you know, that's tough to debate. You can't, you know, even when you sit with an atheist and you talk about the mathematical formula, what are the likelihoods of you being able to make a projection for this to become a reality? You know, somebody won the uh, super, uh, the lotto, whatever that was taking place recently, the $1.6 billion. The chances of winning was 1 in 329 to win the lotto, right? Okay, what are the chances of some of those things becoming a reality? So you go back and you ask the question for me and saying, why is it that I make the comparison of $100,000 to this one? You know, a good leader, a good communicator knows how to put things into perspective where you say, ah, oh, that makes sense. I got it. So you have to take something complex and make it simple. And then outside of that, you can debate emotions. You and I can debate who you like and who you don't like based on emotions. It's very easy. It's impossible to debate math. You cannot debate math. Mathematical formulas cannot be debated. So if you want something that's going to give you a formula where you can get as close to 100% truth as possible, it's math-driven. So I like truth. Mm -hmm. I like absolute truth. Math is a way for me to get to that truth. Yeah, and so there's that. that's where the simplicity comes from. In your mind, when you're putting together these analogies, there's got to be some sort of a mathematical correlation between the two things you're comparing. Always. Okay. As someone who follows your work, oftentimes it is. It's just this, hey, the price of bacon in the 80s was this much, now it's this yep. much. So the world has changed. What are you doing about it? Another question. So if I need some inspiration, I've got my folks that I listen to. I'll probably say, oh, what's Patrick say about this? I recently had a friend ask me about they needed to buy a car. I was like, oh, here's this video on things to think about before you buy a car. So the question is, is what does Patrick listen to when Patrick needs some inspiration? I like Rogan. I think Joe Rogan is legit. I think Rogan is uh, my kind of guy. He gets my attention. I have a hard time listening to somebody who just keeps talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of guys like that on, on YouTube. You can, if you hear them one episode, two episodes, three episodes, you listen 100 more, it's the same exact message you're going to get. I kind of want deeper than that. I want to know what you stand for. I want to know conflict. Uh, I want to know possibly some conspiracy theories you buy into or you don't buy into and calling out people's BS, you know, and this is not true. And a little bit of a heated conversation. Rogan's got a little bit of all of that combined together. So, and, and he seems like a guy that I feel he's not a shallow guy. He comes across very, very deep, intuitive, mm -hmm. open, willing to be transparent, willing to be vulnerable. Um, I'd say he's at the top of my list. 
When it comes down to reading books, there's one author that I'll read 100% of his books, whatever he writes, Robert Greene. He's a very, very good friend of mine. Uh, 40 Laws of Power, 33 Strategies of War, Art of Seduction, Mastery, 50th Law. He just finished his new book called uh, Laws of Human Nature, which is an incredible book. I just sat down with him a few days ago and interviewed him. It's interesting. Right after he finished the book, it was so intense of a book he wrote that he had a stroke. His entire left body is, is not working. He has to pick up his arm. He has to pick up his leg. When I did the interview, you can tell if you look at it. And he posted something about the fact that he had a stroke on his Instagram account. But I'll read his content no matter what he writes. And uh, Joe Rogan, to me, is just a pure class act. How are you able to build connections with all these different people and then go connect with them? Would you tell us a little more of how that works? How to make the connections yeah, is what you're asking about? how to make the connections, how to end up showing up or getting them to show up and, and do these things. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, first of all, you're here. Why? I don't know you. You don't know me. But why are you here? Why did I automatically say yes? You're a Syrian. So we have something in common. So Mario asked me and said, what do you think about this? I said, absolutely. I, we say no to 95% of podcast interviews. I'm running businesses. Right before you, I was on a conference call with a CEO. I'm interviewing. So I'm sitting with this guy. I'm looking at a CEO to hire for the company. So here's, by the way, here's the name of the school you asked me. It was called Behnam Suzan. Behnam Suzan. Oh, okay. I don't know what the name of that school. So Behnam uh, I don't know if it's we'll a, look it up and post yeah, some info. Look them up. Yeah, let me know. Media, yep. So you, you, you're asking a question about how to get these influencers. Number one, when you're small commonalities, whatever that commonality is. Number two, what's in it for me? When Mark Cuban and I spoke, I said, Mark, I'd like to interview you. We had like a thousand subscribers on YouTube. He says, Buddy, no one knows who you are. I said, No, I know you don't know who I am, but what do I need to do for you for you to want to do something with us? Do you want me to sell you some books? He says, no, I make 50 cents a copy. I don't care if you sell me books. I'm a billionaire. I said, okay. So what do you want, Mark? He said, I came out with a new app, CyberDust. I said, okay. What do you need? Downloads. How many apps do you need downloaded? You give me 500 downloads, I'll do a meeting with you. Great. I got him 1,500 downloads. Mm -hmm. Then we did the interview. After the interview, I got him 10,000 downloads. So if you're going to come through. I downloaded CyberDust, Did by you? The way. Okay, I watch did. that. Perfect That's example, right. Yeah. right? So I got all these messages now from CyberDust because of what we did. So. Mark realized if this guy says he's going to do something, we come through. Mm -hmm. So if I'm asking you for your time and I respect your time, you got to come through and do your part. So Mark's a guy worth $3.5 billion. I'm not a $3.5 billion guy. Maybe a $100 million guy. But it's a big difference between $3.5 mm -hmm. billion and a $100 million guy. And so then from there, you know, the next people we started interviewing was generally people I had interest in. I had to be interested in you. Uh, and and I, this sounds a little bit cocky and arrogant, but I don't want to come across that way. I, I interview better if I'm interviewing somebody I'm interested Abs in. Yeah. I've interviewed certain people. I'm like, oh, my gosh, just because you're a celebrity, you are boring as hell. Just please, let's wrap this thing up so I can go back to doing whatever I was doing before. But if I'm sitting down generally with somebody I like and I'm interested and I do my research, more and more people start talking and saying, this guy doesn't come empty-handed. When he does your uh, interview... You're going to know this is a guy that's going to ask you a question that's not been asked before. And that, that earns respect from the interviewee. So when someone you're trying to interview sends me a message and says, hey, Pat, what do you think about this guy? Should I get on him? Yeah, this guy's legit. They're good people. They talk and you don't know because people call me all the time nowadays and they ask me if they should do interviews with some podcast. So, um, yeah, I mean, and once you get past the tipping point from Again, that point it's on. it's a simplicity thing. It really is. It goes is. back to relationships and commonalities. Um, the other thing I've noticed, going back to your valuetainment, and actually more about you, 
you're no holds barred in terms of ideas and backgrounds and beliefs. Like I was watching your morning rituals and you were talking about this tank that drops the degrees down and freezes you. Yeah. Man, there's such an openness to, you know, some people would automatically be like, that's for crazy people. What what are they thinking yeah. about? Yeah. That doesn't happen with you. Tell us where do you where does that come from? I mean, listen, life is about testing, right? I mean, for me, I am extremely curious. You know, when we sat down, the first thing I asked you is, tell me about you. Who are you? And you yeah. tell me, hey, you know, I went to school. I'm from Dallas, Addison, Pepsi. I grew up here. This is family to me. I went back to L.A. and I tried something. And then I went and worked over there. And then I came back here. And then Oakland. Like, I'm actually listening to what you're telling. We talk about Pastor George. You told me which Pastor George, the one, this one. No, another Pastor George. I got you the name, Lindley. Do you know Vladimir? Yes, I know Vladimir. How do you know Vladimir? Let me tell you a story. So, so this is the part. When I'm speaking to you, I am listening to you. I think sometimes we are so concerned about what you think of what I'm thinking. I don't care what you're thinking. I'm curious in you. I am so interested in who you are that I lose all those things of trying to impress you with the right questions. I'm just purely immersed mm-hmm. with wanting to get to know you, right? So you asked the question about, you know, uh, going into something that the temperature drops at 240. Why would you do something like that? Because I'm curious. So I test, will this work? Will this not work? Maybe it is going to work. Maybe it's not going to work. And eventually you have no idea what happens. Right now this morning I had my friend from the military. We were talking about flexibility. I used to do a lot of yoga when I was in L.A., Bikram yoga. And Bikram yoga, you'd go in a room, 115 degrees, and you'd go an hour and a half. And you go into and it was, it was a lot of work, but it was a test. At that time when I was doing it, I had become more flexible. And I think sometimes, you know, in life, we got to test things more often. And some of the ones we're actually going to end up falling in love with. Not all of them. Some of them are going to work for you. And this was one of the tests that I did. Well, I love it. And I know that we're all blessed by it because sometimes you need someone you respect and that you can relate to who's going to go down that path before you do so that you'll do it. Because, you know, even like yoga, Very true. I'm like, oh, why should I do yoga? Oh, well, you know what? Patrick Bed David does yoga yeah. and it helps him or these uh, tanks. So that's amazing. Okay. You just turned 40. What's 50 going to be like? I think this next 10 years is going to be epic. I think it's going to be um, pretty wild. But it's going to be so for me. Everything I did was a 20-year increments. Okay. Now you got to realize, I I come from two schools of thought, and I'll explain to you both of them what this means. Winston Churchill has a quote: "History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it." One more time: "History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it." Meaning, you're not going to control my history. I'm going to take control of my history. And I'm going to make sure whatever you write about me is going to be amazing because I took my life seriously, right? So that's Churchill. Now, the complete opposite side to that is what? You have your plans, then there's God has plans for you, okay? I am very comfortable with both of them. Let me explain. If I die tomorrow, very comfortable. He's got a plan. I'm cool with that. But I'm assuming I'm not dying tomorrow. So if I'm not dying tomorrow, I'm going to write my own history. First 20 years of my life was becoming Patrick Bed David and going through a lot of hardships and challenges. The next 20 years of my life was being in the financial industry. The following 20 years is going to be media. Uh, and when I tell you media, I think, uh, uh, you know, movies, storytelling, um, you know, sharing what we're sharing right now. Spirit. You love it. You love what you're doing now. I'm in heaven. Yeah. Oh, I'm in heaven. And by the way, I love insurance as well. That's what's so weird about it. You know, you have to love insurance to be in it as long as I've been at a young age. While most young people don't sell insurance, they think I'm crazy or cuckoo for being on life insurance. No, I love it. But for me, it's increments, 20, 20, 20, 20. 
And the next thing right now, uh, I'm probably going to be the COPHP for another two years max uh, uh, and being involved the way I am right now for two more years. I'm already hiring a CEO. I could be hiring a CEO in the next six months. I almost hired one CEO, but uh, the guy ended up having a stroke and passed away. So it was a very strange thing that happened with that. But we're in search right now. We're looking at five different guys. Once I hire the CEO, my role will change to more working with the leaders in the field. And in probably 18, 24 months from now, I will not have the full-time role that I have today. Then it's going to be telling stories and making sure capitalism is going to be around for as long as I'm alive. So. And it was interesting, as I was trying to get the link between PHP and Valuetainment, it quickly dawned on me that here's what's happening. Uh, PHP is the arena in which someone could sell insurance and create their own reality, create their own future financially. And Valuetainment, in some ways, is the engine that inspires, encourages, and gives those folks direction. Would you say there's a there's a link there? That was the initial idea. I mean, I, we thought initially that was going to be the main thing. We did not think there was going to be, you know, a, a, a amount of people that now watch Valuetainment that have nothing to do with PHP. You know, so it, it, we, we have a million subscribers, nearly six, seven hundred million minutes watched. We never thought it was going to turn into something like this. We thought it was going to be some small, but now it turned into something bigger. It just tells you the fact that people around the world want to figure out ways to become entrepreneurs and solve problems. And it's starting to dawn on me even more that people are also looking for basic, simple decisions like who to marry, how to marry. I made that video. I didn't think it was a big deal of a video. I can't tell you how many emails I get about that video, you know, who to marry and how to marry. Most men don't know who to marry and how to marry. I made a video, 15 things to know before you date an entrepreneur. Do you know how many entrepreneurs have shared that video with their girlfriend or their wives? And they say, here's the video, listen to this to understand who I am. So there's a need for it. I'm going to do my best to fulfill it. And uh, again, never thought it'd be at this scale, but it's been, it's been exciting. That is exciting. Um, you mentioned earlier about writing your own history, and it, asked, it brought up something that I'd love to pick your brain about. What do you think of AI? I mean, it's a direction we're going into. It's um, not going to be anything uh, uh, out of the ordinary. You can't stop it. Um, it can go in a bad direction. It can go in a good direction, you know, just like anything else. You know, you look at uh, a gun. Uh, what was the purpose of a gun being designed? Do you know the original purpose of a gun? It was called the Great Equalizer. What is the Great Equalizer? Guns were made for women to protect themselves from men. So here, if you own a gun, and here's Patrick Bay David, I'm a big guy, yeah. 240 pounds, 6'4", you're 5'1", 110 pounds, you're not afraid of me because this gun is a great equalizer, right? So now guns can be used for good and they can be used for bad. Nuclear plants can be used for good and they can be used for bad. We saw what happened the last time we used a nuclear bomb. It devastated a nation, Hiroshima, right? Uh, internet can be used for good or it can be used for bad. God knows how many of these sex trafficking, pornographic websites of teens and all that other stuff that's out there right? That's not usage of good tool with the internet. But internet today allowing you to find me, me to find you, and the listeners to listen to two Assyrians talking to one another. Yep. It's going to be the same case with AI. There are going to be people that are going to abuse AI. It can get very, very ugly. Um, the good news is the more and more I talk to people that are involved in CIA or they're involved in uh, agencies that are governmental agencies or secret service or whatever you want to call it, they are becoming so confident about the level of scrutiny 
and how they're kind of getting to the point that they know your next three steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's to the point that people know your next three steps based on searches you do on the internet. Mm-hmm. If you go on your Google and you search how to get a divorce, guess what Google knows? knows you're thinking about getting a divorce. You're probably going through tough times with your wife. If you write in, you know, how to overcome bipolar, Google knows. Guess what? Maybe you have bipolar. If you write how to buy a bomb, why do you want to buy a bomb? So all of those things are going to start kind of leading us to knowing your next three, four, five, six steps. So, you know, like today they say cheating has become easier, but it's also become scarier today. Why? Well, because if a guy in power and authority has a mistress on the side, and he thinks he can get away with it. We're men. You're tempted. What do you do? Look at the guy at the top of the helm. You know, McDougal and Stormy Daniels. You look at Kennedy. Look at Clinton. Look at all these guys. Okay, but today, it's slightly different. Why? If somebody has a phone with them, they have a camera with them. They have an audio recorder with them. Right. You have to be aware. So what does that do? It prevents people in authority of doing stupid things today because if that gets public, they're so embarrassed, they have to prevent themselves. Okay, AI is going to also be used in ways to prevent us from committing crime because if we do, it's easier to catch you doing something stupid. So I'm betting on the good guys yeah. overpowering the bad guys as it mm-hmm. always has historically. And by the way, I don't know if I'm making any sense of what Absolutely. I'm saying. Absolutely. But that's uh, what I think about yeah, when I see it. The long and the short of it is it can go in any direction, but you're, of course, on the human side, we want it to do well. We want it to help us to be as fully human as possible. So I've got kind of two or three wrap-up questions for us. I know... Um, this has been a wonderful time so far. So if you had Patrick Bet David on a podcast interview, what question would you absolutely make sure you asked him before the interview was up? You know, I, 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 uh, I would ask the question of what was on my mind when I was coming up, not where I'm here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think a lot of times we ask a successful person per se, and, you know, for me, in my eyes, I'm not there yet. Like I am far, to a lot of people, say, oh my gosh, Pat, how could you say that? Look what you've done with your life. What I'm planning on doing with my life, I've maybe done 10% of it. I'm like, the momentum's really gonna take off the next 20 years if I'm around. Um, but I would ask where I was at when I was coming up. I think that's what it would be. Yeah. You know, the, the fears, truly the insecurities, the, the, the one side of man, you know, I, I just, I wanna live this dream so bad, you know. But at the same time, I, I just don't think I'm cut out to do this. You know, what makes you think you're capable? When my dad had a heart attack and I was at UCLA Medical Center and I go downstairs and I'm on the Ford Focus and I got kicked out of the hospital because I threw stuff around in the room because my dad, I couldn't believe how they were treating people. Then the guy says, what are you talking about? You don't have any money. This is government help. You're not paying for this. These are taxpayers paying for your dad's support. And he's right. And I wanted world-class treatment. I went in the car that night. And uh, I sat in the Ford Focus and I cried nonstop. I cried for 30 minutes. I'm just hitting my steering wheel. I'm cursing myself out. And I said, I'm going to give everything. And I'm going to go out there and win for this guy. Because this guy, without him, I wouldn't be in America. My dad's my hero. Uh, My dad's a guy that, let me put it to you this way. I can listen to a song like Papa's by Paul Anka. Uh, If I listen to it 100 times, I'm going to cry 100 times. My dad is like that guy in my life. Like he is amazing of a human being to me. And... I go to that moment and I said, I want to win for this guy. But the next day, that confidence is filled with inner insecurities. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. I'm just fooling everybody. There's no way in the world this is going to happen. Then I'm getting some success, then massive failure. Then I go to the police station to become a cop. And somehow, some way, 
my speeding tickets didn't allow me to be a cop. But what if my speeding tickets weren't there? I would have been a cop. What if I would have taken the easy way out? You know, and then I go to the recruiting station. They offer me a job back in the military. He wanted me to come back. I miss my friends in the Army. I was this close to go back in the Army. So a lot of times we look at a final product and you forget my close breaking points. I know my breaking points. This is why I'm not cocky because I know how close I was of throwing the towel in. And just because somehow, some way, by a little bit more mental and emotional toughness of being willing to stick around, a little bit more stubbornness, a little bit more of what if, living in that what if dream possibilities, a little bit more of thinking about my dad made me not want to quit those moments that led to the next victory coming up. So if you ask me the question, I would ask about what were you thinking about when you were coming up? And um, I'd say that's what it was on my mind. And you just answered it. So yeah. thank you so much for interviewing yourself on the Assyrian yeah. podcast. I, really I appreciate, appreciate that. It. Um, one thing I love to ask anybody who's on the Assyrian podcast is if you could say one thing to Assyrians all over the world who listen to the podcast, what would you say to them? So it, it, they're not going to like what I'm going to say to them, though. No, and, let's and, hear okay, it. Okay, so, so, so this is not going to be something that the, the whole diplomatic answer. I, I've had issues with the Assyrian community for a while, and I've told all of them multiple times. Uh, and this is the challenge with the Assyrian community. Here you have the first warriors ever. One of the most ridiculously powerful empire ever, where if you read some of the books, you saw what God did to the Assyrian people because they wanted to be more powerful than who? God. The Assyrians would go in the jungle, find lions, and kill lions because they wanted to say, we're the king of the jungle, not uh, the, the lions, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not gone away a lot, by the way, today, because if you look at Assyrians today, there are multiple communities of Assyrians. You have the club and you have the church community, Okay. And both of them think they're right, and both of them think the other side has no clue what they're talking about. The, the, the general of the army uh, of the Assyrian community from uh, uh, Iraq flew out to meet with me. We had a long meeting together with him and several of his uh, uh, major sergeants that he had. And we had a great conversation together. He was telling me about the challenges he was having with ISIS. And one of our colonels in America, his name is Sergon, he brought him as well. We sat down and we had a deep conversation together. Uh, I see Assyrians being divided today simply because of their egos. One thing, the other one is wrong, and the other one thinks the other one is right. Now look what the Israelis did. Here's the one thing that we got to learn from the Israeli community. How long has Israel been around? Not that many years. This is recent. We're not talking 200 years. It's less than 100 years. Matter of fact, I think it's like 70 years that, that they've been around. And look how powerful of a nation Israel is today. Look what Netanyahu is doing right now. Look how he keeps it together. Look how he builds relationships with other people. What happened to the Israeli community? They came together and realized their country is more important than their egos. The Assyrian community filled with incredible talent, incredible knowledge. Some of the things you and I use today, in Assyrians invented. You know this. I know this. But I think it's uh, unfortunately the older folks think the younger folks have no clue what they're talking about. All this kind of talk. It's sad, but true. It's sad, but it's true, and it's unfortunate. And for me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring light to the Assyrian community. I'm going to make sure people know what the Assyrian community is. What the Assyrian leaders and voices decide to do to come together and unite, have a meeting to be on the same page and then go on a campaign Mm -hmm. and know who cares who gets the credit. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in all these political stuff. Can you give me 50,000 here, 100,000 here, 20,000 here? Why don't you give to your Assyrian people? Why don't you guys first unite? And I'd be more than happy to help out and coordinate and do any of that stuff. But I think the biggest concern I have with the Assyrian community is Armenians are at least united. 
We have Yerevansi Armenian, Lebanonsi Armenian, Parskahai, Turkish Armenian, Russian Armenian, and they're still together. Assyrians, it's a different story. Now, I know I upset a few people. I know some parents, some grandparents are upset at me, and who does this guy think talking about this? But you know, for those of you that are listening, you need to realize it is important to me for Assyrians to be united. I just hate to see all these conversations about how many of you think you're right and everybody else is wrong and you are hurting the community. Whether you like this or not, you know internally I am right. And I hope you take this message realizing that we can come together and sit down and say, here's what I'm right, here's what he's wrong, here's what his, but what is important more than what I'm saying is the fact that us being united together, let's do something about it. And let's make this thing big. It is Assyrian, uh, what do you call it, every year that it happens. This last one was in Phoenix, these conventions. They become more about a place to get together and hook up and meet other girls and do all this other stuff and party, and then it's actually become about getting substance done. And it's unfortunate because this, the world, if a Kim Kardashian becomes a celebrity, and now all over the world, they're looking at the Armenian community because they know the Armenian community. Whatever she did, she did something stupid to get there. Armenians are getting a lot of attention nationally. She's one of them, and there's a lot of other people out there. Assyrians still, till today, haven't taken that next step. I'd love to see it happen, but I haven't seen it yet. Love it. I will say at the Assyrian conventions, they've actually switched it up significantly so that now there's more educational. Now there's opportunities to learn and grow. And it is still social, but it's also educational. But I'm, By the way, I don't mind the social part. I want you to know yeah. this. I'm not saying no social. Yeah. I, I think it's great. I think it's phenomenal that they're doing the social part. But uh, I, I think there's got to be a part to bring the decision makers together in the room. Rather than doing it this way, get the top 100 most influential Assyrians that it matters to them to do something rather than a convention. Host a meeting with the top 100 most influential pastors, businessmen, mm -hmm. influencers, athletes, Bring them all Hollywood, together. all of them, young, old, older, military, from Alamos, from America, from all over the place. Bring them all together and let's see what we can do together, together then everyone's going to see that we're on the same page. Yeah, I don't hear negativity or criticism. What I hear is a call to succeed and to go to the next stage, and we're not going to do that when it's so dysfunctional of uh, factions going against one another. And Patrick, there's always a gotcha, so here's my gotcha, man. Let's this do is it. my last question. So when are we going to go for a ride in the Ferrari? <laughs> well, you know, for me, um, my license got suspended again couple of years ago, a few years ago. And then, you know, we started having kids. And so I had a, a, a Venador, the orange one. I had a 458, the red one. I had an I-8, I had a bunch of different things. And my wife and I had to sit down and I said, you know, I'm, you know, what do you want me to do? And she said, you got to get rid of some of these cars right now. So I downsized everything and I bought a convertible uh, Rolls Royce Blue Dawn, brand new one. And so now that I have this guy over here, O'Neill, uh, 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 to my right, to your left, I am thinking about getting a Ducati secretly to get some of that speed in me, and uh, I'm in the market right now for a 488 as well. So wait so we until I. we don't want you to get your license suspended. No, again. you don't want me getting my license and suspended. I don't know if we want you on a bike either. No, believe me, no, no one in my family wants me. But when you have an itch for speed, you have an itch for speed. Think of the kids, man. I think know, I know. Kids. That's what saves me every time. That's what saves me every time. That's what gets me. But this is a bad influence, man. You're a bad influence. I got to tell you, O'Neill. You're a terrible influence on me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, man, we really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Appreciate you for coming out. Truly, thank you. Anytime.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe and review us in the iTunes Store or wherever you listen to the podcast. Spread the word about the Assyrian Podcast. It has been so much fun to grow this podcast alongside you, our listeners, from all around the world. Thank you for making the Assyrian Podcast what it is. Email us at info at with any questions or comments. Have a great week.